Welcome to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by League Apps. League Apps is the leading youth sports management platform, providing organizations with the technology and professional development they need to run, grow, and win. On a mission to bring the benefits of sport to kids everywhere, they go beyond technology to provide leaders with professional development and relationship building, and to work with sports-based organizations to address issues of accessibility and equality. To learn more, find them at League Apps com or as league apps on all of the social networks now here's the host of the show longtime soccer broadcaster and voice of united soccer coaches dean linky i am dean linky this is the united soccer coaches podcast it is presented by league apps and we have another gigantic show the third part of a three-part series talking about the collaboration between generation adidas international powered by inspire sport and united soccer coaches that allows any member of United Soccer Coaches an exclusive soccer experience at the 2022 UEFA Women's Euros, which is July 9 through July 19th. We've already talked to Jeremy Parkins from Generation Adidas International. Last week, we talked to Janet Rayfield, who'll be on the trip. This week, we talked to three more people that will be on the trip. Becky Burley and Brett Ledbetter, as well as Celia Slater, kick off the show Then we go deep with Mike Lynch, who is the chair for the Faith-Based Coaches Community for United Soccer Coaches. He always brings heady topics, and I use that word, no pun intended, as he talks about the dangers of heading, and he breaks it down with the legendary UNC coach Anson Dorrance, as well as Shuga Shinohara from Arizona State University, and later Paul Gardner, the Hall of Fame columnist for Soccer America. That's our show. It's a big one. And it starts after this message from our presenting sponsor, League Apps. We bet you didn't get into this business for the back office duties. That's why we created League Apps, the industry's leading youth sports management platform. So you can spend less time with busy work and more time doing what you love. League Apps provides organizations with the technology and professional development they need to run, grow, and win. Go to leagueapps.com to learn more. League Apps is proud to be the presenting sponsor of the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by League Apps. Once again, here's the host of the show, Dean Linky. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Lee Gaps, the third part of a three-part series. As we talk about Generation Adidas International, powered by Inspire Sport and their partnership with United Soccer Coaches as they offer an exclusive soccer experience at the 2022 UEFA Women's Euros. Your trip will begin on July 9 and then on July 19 and will include six tickets to six matches, coaching education with United Soccer Coaches, surprise coach education opportunities, exclusive access to tour incredible stadiums, cultural activities, and so much more. We've already met the top man for Generation Adidas International for North America and the key part, Jeremy Parkins. Last week, we had Janet Rayfield, the legendary head coach of Illinois, who's going to be on the trip. And also on this trip, as promised, is Becky Burley and Brett Ledbetter. Becky Burley is one of the most successful college soccer coaches in the U.S. and 25 seasons at the helm of the University of Florida soccer team. Becky led them to an NCAA championship, two NCAA College Cup appearances, 14 SEC titles, and 22 NCAA championship bursts. Along the way, she picked up the National and SEC Coach of the Year. Her career winning percentage 
above 75% is amazing. And she is definitely one of the favorites among United Soccer coaches. She's been working a lot with Brett Ledbetter, who's a performance consultant, author, and speaker. He worked with some of the best coaches and teams in pro and college sports. He's the co-founder of What Drives Winning. What Drives Winning puts on conferences, shares conference videos, and has a coaching lab. His books and workbooks all elevate performance. His latest book, What Drives Winning Environments, helps with the question, how do you build an environment where people can do their best work? Brett is the best in the business at asking questions and an incredible interviewer. And we got them both, Becky Burley and Brett Ledbetter. Hi, Becky. Hello. We're happy to be here. Yeah. What up? <laughs> All right, Brett. I like that. What up? All right, perfect. Well, here's the deal. The window is closing on coaches having this amazing opportunity to be with all of you and taking six games as part of the 2022 UEFA Women's Euros. So we'll start with you, Becky, and then Brett, you jump right in. Why should coaches join? Well, first of all, you know, the United Soccer Coaches always does an amazing and, and just a great trip when you go with them and you get the opportunity to see games and get an opportunity to get some education along the way and have a lot of fun. We're really looking forward to it because it's just one of a lifetime experience. What more do I need to say? <laughs> <laughs> you must be pumped, Brett, to join, you know, Becky and Celia and Janet and Bill and all these incredible people. Absolutely. I love the audience and I love the engagement. It, it feels sometimes when you present, it feels more like a conversation. And that's exactly what it feels like when we get together with your crew. Well, and Becky, the biggest thing about this is the incredible involvement of women's soccer right and now the 2022 uefa women's euros with ada football covering the pro side of course these will be the countries the top countries over there as well i mean women's football has never been bigger well you know it's so exciting this this time right now in europe is just like you're seeing the explosion of popularity in women's football and to go to the euros like you know, I know people have seen the men's Euros on television and they see the pageantry involved with that. Well, that's all coming into the women's game too, which is so exciting to watch. And when you think about it, Brett, what drives winning? Of course, the U.S. women, you know, they win all the time. In fact, they were disappointed, at least we were, I think, as a country to only get bronze at the Olympics. So certainly, you know about winning. And now we're seeing these European teams challenge the U.S., even beat them occasionally. So as you think about taking it in from your what drives winning and what drives winning environment perspective, what are you most looking forward to? I think it's great, man. I, to be honest, I am getting more and more familiar. My background's obviously in back, basketball and Becky and I worked on a project with you, Orlando Pride. Some of the national players were on that roster and it's just fun to see how the mindset transfers, not only between sports, but then once you take it to the global level, how the margin of error becomes smaller and smaller and it becomes more of a mental game. Like what Brett says is like these global stages that it's becoming now for these international players, it adds a layer of pressure and it adds a layer of visibility that is something that they then have to deal with. And so I think if as coaches, if we're not aware that that plays into performance, that's probably a miss on our part. So, and that's what we're talking about. Exactly. Because what we're, we're always saying is, what, what does the modern athlete have to deal with that coaches didn't when they were playing? And, and some and of those answers, lot. what are those? Those are things like, well, obviously everybody first goes to social media, but even going deeper on like, what about social media? Like that constant scrutiny of your performance that lives over and over again. You know, the, the player specialization, you know, getting into one sport so early, 
the return on investment that parents expect when they enroll their kids in soccer. And now they see them progressing through, whether it's, you know, the youth leagues to the college ranks, to the professional ranks, they want to return on that investment. So there's just so many more things that swirl around the mind of the modern athlete that I think didn't really affect us as growing up as players. And if you think about it, sports, the coolest thing, especially on that stage, is you feel the love in the arena because people are there and they're totally engaged with what's going on. But then you leave the field and you go into the locker room and what are they engaging on? Their phones. And there's a global commentary that's putting them at the center of the story, whether it's good or bad. And so there's just so much noise surrounding the athlete. How do you create a, uh, a way for them to insulate themselves from that noise to find their best performance? What other space is there like theater, it's contained to the theater. If you go to a concert, it's contained to the amphitheater. The sport is globally distributed. And so that distribution leads to a global conversation. And people like you are talking about it. And so these athletes, that's what's the beauty of sport is there's more pressure on them than ever. And the ones that can, can learn how to navigate that and filter through it, there's such an inspiration to the young athletes who are coming up through that system. You've got me fired up and we have a lot of- You got me fired up. <laughs> we got a lot of great people going over there and we're not done though, Becky, because Bill Bezik is also gonna be a part of it. What will he bring? Oh my gosh, Bill, Bill has been like the best of friends to the United Soccer Coaches. You know, I've been inspired by Bill for years. He's one of the first people I look for on the schedule when I go to the convention because his wisdom and his experience just tells you so much about where he's been and the locker rooms he's been in. And he and Brett have had a great relationship as thinking partners for some time now. And I think it's because he can offer a global perspective that's also a little different than living here in the US. Every time I listen to Bill, I, I take something away from it. And most of the time it's like pages of notes. He's the American mirror. Sometimes it's easier to see the label when you're not in the bottle. He's not in the bottle. Now, what he also will acknowledge that America in a lot of ways is 10 years ahead of most people. And so he can see things matriculate from us down the road. And I think that the way he's able to understand how capitalism affects sport and the commercialization of the athlete has been remarkable. And I think he lends a perspective that not many have. So he'll be there, and our next guest, after we have a couple messages, is Celia Slater. Becky, I think you might know her just a little bit. Do you? What will just, she a little. Bring, just a little bit. What will she bring uh, to this trip? What perspective will Celia bring? Well, Celia has had so much experience in, in helping coaches along their journey. And I think the other part of that is that she is a great community builder. So one thing I'm really excited about is whatever group is going over, you're going to stay connected well beyond this trip because that's one of Celia's superpowers. She accelerates trust like nobody we've ever met. And we'll hear that from her. But before we close, the final word as one thing I will say, Becky, it's really nice to see you in this sweet spot with Brett doing what you do best. And that is promoting the love of the game and, and all that you're about. And I'm glad that 
you're doing what you love. And I'm glad that the folks that go with United Soccer Coaches on this trip can feel it from you and from Brett and from Celia and everybody else. But final last word on why coaches need to sign up and they need to sign up right now. Becky, you go first. And then Brett, you put an exclamation point on it. Well, Brett, you're going to be the closer. <laughs> the closer. <laughs> I, I think the best reason to go is because it's not often that you can get continuing education in a situation that you actually really, really enjoy it. I feel like most people go through continuing education. It's kind of like, oh, we got to watch this video or we got to do this. This is a fun trip. You get so much education. You get so much community. You get so much ability to entertain yourselves with the games that are going to be a part of this. I mean, what more could you ask for in an experience? And I'll go to the other side. I think you hear a lot of coaches uh, talk about the finish line when they reference their careers just because the complexity of what's happening and there was someone i was talking to and they said that they're working so hard to protect a job they don't even enjoy and i think the higher you go inside the sport it can squeeze you and we hope to address some of those issues to make it a fulfilling experience to where you're not just surviving it Becky Burley and Brett Ledbetter will be on the trip with Generation Adidas International in collaboration with United Soccer Coaches July 9th through July 19th. Experience the 2022 UEFA Women's Euros. We're not done talking about it. After these messages, Celia Slater will also be on the trip. We'll hear from Miss Slater after this. Performance analysis is now recognized as having a crucial role to play in any coaching program. United Soccer Coaches Performance Analysis Level 1 Special Topics Diploma will provide coaches with real-world examples of how analysis is being used to enhance the individual player development process and maximize team performance. Additionally, successful candidates will achieve Level 1 accreditation as an Applied Performance Analyst from the International Society of Performance Analysis of Sport. Register now by visiting the Master Course Schedule on unitedsoccercoaches.org. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Lee Gaps. As we just heard, it's the third part of a three-part series talking about Generation Adidas International powered by Inspire Sport, partnering with United Soccer Coaches to offer all of the United Soccer Coaches members an exclusive soccer experience at the 2022 UEFA Women's Euros. Your trip will begin on July 9th and end on July 19th. It includes tickets to six matches, coaching education with United Soccer Coaches, surprise coach education opportunities, cultural activities, stadium visits, and so much more. We already heard from Becky Burley, the legendary former head coach for the University of Florida, as well as Brett Ledbetter, as those two do amazing consulting work. And as promised, the great lead-in from Becky and Brett, talking about Celia Slater, also going to be on the trip. She's an athletics strategist, a creative coaching visionary, and an impassioned leader, pioneering, forward-thinking, and solution-focused. Celia Slater is a nationally recognized leader committed to providing professional development opportunities for coaches of all sports, interested in pursuing both excellence in the profession and bridging the gap toward gender equality for both coaches and players. Celia's core beliefs rest in the power of emotional investment and reaching one's own, quote, true north, end quote, to achieve the height of victory as a coach, not just in accolades, but by successfully understanding oneself, being authentic and communicating with one's players to have a mutually beneficial relationship. And she's going to communicate with me now. Celia, you're also going on this amazing trip as part of the 2022 UEFA Women's Euros. Janet Rayfield's going, as we already mentioned. Becky and Brett are going. 
it's uh, kind of like a who's who of people that are going to be going with other members. Talk about your excitement to be a part of this trip to the 2022 UEFA Women's Euros. Well, I'm like so excited because we're going to get to work with a variety of coaches while we're there. We get to watch amazing soccer and uh, we're also going to get to see Bill Beswick while we're there. So that's another really exciting thing. I miss seeing Bill in person. Uh, he hasn't been at the convention and I think that's just going to be so exciting just to hug his neck. I look forward to seeing him and his wife, Val. So that'll be really awesome. Yeah, it's interesting as Becky also talked about uh, how excited she was to meet Bill. So you guys are on the same page there. You know, and I feel like you'll be able to give a, a unique take and different than everybody else there. You know, talk about why you built True North and True North Sports and, and how you might impart some of your wisdom with True North Sports on this trip. Well, I think... Um, it's a great, what do you call, pain to gift story. And just in that, I really struggled as a coach because I felt like I was thrown into this profession as a former athlete to become a coach. And like everybody just says, oh, well, you played the sport. You should be able to coach it. Well, it doesn't always work out that easily. And I think that's pretty much my philosophy and my life has been around how can I help the younger generation of coaches feel more prepared to move into this really challenging and extremely rewarding profession. But if you're not prepared, it can be a little bit more on the challenging side. <laughs> so all of our courses and stuff that we do through our three core workbooks, managing yourself, managing your program, managing your culture, are all really around how do we help coaches get the self-awareness and the skill sets needed, just some basic fundamental human people managing leadership skills before they jump into this profession. That's kind of where I come from is how can I help them know themselves better so that they can be better for the people they work with. As I take a look at your bio and your incredible website geared around True North Sports, and as I think about some of the coaches that are on the fence right now as it's coming down to the wire on pulling the trigger to be a part of this, I noticed that uh, you mentioned one of your favorite scholars, Brene Brown. I'm the president of her fan club for sure. <laughs> yeah, and her quote is, vulnerability is our most accurate form of courage. And maybe some coaches are feeling a little bit vulnerable about going over there, not sure what to expect. But I think that quote really speaks to those people that might be on the fence about going on this trip. I think that's so true. And I wanted to say to you, one of the things that I'm doing, I turned 60 in December. So I have decided to do 60 new things in this next year. So I challenge all the coaches out there to look at what are some new things that you can do, whatever year of your life you're in, whether that's 20, 30, 40, make this one of your 20 new things that you're going to do, 40 new things, put yourself outside of your comfort zone. And the last thing I want to say about this too is I know it costs money to go on this trip, but if you value and you say you value professional development and getting better, then you have to put money on what you value. So you have to give your time, your money, and your energy to whatever it is you value in your life, or it's really not a value for you. So I would figure out a way to go, get rejuvenated, get some new ideas, meet some new people. I mean, and go to another country. I mean, how much more fun could that be to get some professional development and gather all those different experiences and meet all those new people to rejuvenate your spirit before you jump into your next season starting in August. If you're sitting on the fence with this, 
borrow the money from your parents, do whatever you need to do, but get on the train and have an amazing experience that will definitely inject some amazing ideas, friendships, energy moving into your 22, 23 season. I look back on it and I'm so grateful that we have these opportunities now for younger coaches that they didn't have when I was coaching, but now they have them. Like, God, I would have been a kid in a candy store enjoying all of this opportunity to grow and to mingle and to, you know, just to see the facilities, all these legendary facilities are going to get to go see in the soccer world. Like, wow, like this is an amazing opportunity. So well said, Celia Slater, True North Sports, athletic strategist, creative coaching visionary and impassioned leader. And she shared that here today. One last push to get more coaches to go over and enjoy the women's Euros. Thank you so much, Celia, for being on this week's United Soccer Coaches podcast. Thanks, Dean. I appreciate being here. All right, two interviews in the books, and now I turn the show over to Mike Lynch, who is the chair of the United Soccer Coaches Faith-Based Coaches Community, as he talks about heading into the future, specifically about the topic of heading and safety, and he does it with three amazing guests. I turn it over to Mike Lynch after these messages. United Soccer Coaches would like to thank all 2022 convention attendees, exhibitors, presenters, and volunteers for reuniting in Kansas City. You can relive all of the special moments from the awards banquet and All-America ceremony and reception by watching the recordings now available on unitedsoccercoachesconvention.org. Remember to save the date for the 2023 convention in Philadelphia, January 11th through 15, 2023. Heading into the future, what do we know about heading and concussions? That is the $64,000 question and what we're here today to talk about. We know that soccer is a contact sport. The rules of the game allow contact, albeit regulated, but we do have contact. We know that soccer is the only sport in the world that allows the head to be used as a blunt force object as part of the sport. Even MMA doesn't allow headbutts. We know that concussions are caused by not only the ball to the head, but especially head-to-head -head when we're combating for headers or when we get upended and we hit the ground. Often though, we don't recover from these injuries like we do fractures and tears. You look at Taylor Twelman, look at Ross Pauley, look at the military veterans and, and some of the head injuries that they had as part of their duty in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so it's real. And the short-term concussion injuries significantly affect the roster. The return to play is at best uh, weeks and sometimes can be even longer. And then, of course, now with soccer's popularity around the world and I mean, with TV kind of telling us what's going on around the world, we're even hearing stories now of the 1966 England World Cup winning squad where 50% have died of dementia-related illnesses. The data is, is starting to catch up now to where we are in the soccer world. It's very compelling, and it's time to really take a close look at heading into the future. With that as a table setter, my name is Mike Lynch. I'm the chair of Faith-Based Coaches Community here in United Soccer Coaches, where we're constantly looking at both the point and purpose of sport. And specifically, we choose to always champion sportsmanship and ethics. I want to thank Dean Linke for the platform, this opportunity to talk about this very important subject. And joining us today is Anson Dorrance, Sugar Shidahara. And later on the podcast, we'll have a chance to hear from the great Paul Gardner. 
you know, this portion of the show is again directed by, I think, one of the great leaders of the game and one of the great people in United Soccer Coaches. He is the chair of the Faith Based Coaches Community, Mike Lynch. He has put amazing panels together before, and now he'll do it again with the topic heading into the future. And that is definitely more than a double entendre. That is a fascinating topic heading into the future. I'll turn it over to the great Mike Lynch. Mm. Thank you, Dean. I appreciate it. Uh, this is an exciting topic. I'm really looking forward to uh, uh, having the panel chime in with their experience and, and uh, ideas. Uh, it's a very experienced panel, uh, a topic important to all coaches, but especially the faith-based coaches community in that uh, we're trying to constantly push the point and purpose of sport, but specifically to champion sportsmanship and ethics. And I think that heading into the future, as we learn more and more things about uh, the risk of uh, concussions and degenerative um, illness is that uh, this is something that uh, is going to come to the forefront. I want to start with a, just a couple, a quote and, and a couple questions, and then I'd love to get the panel involved. But uh, JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, the neurology version of that, uh, August 21, just came out with the results from the field study. And this is what their findings showed. Male pro soccer players are 3.6 times more likely to die of dementia-related illness versus the general population. There's a whole lot more packed into that journal article, which is really, really fascinating, talking about uh, um, different positions, career lengths, the different eras of when the players played. But I just wanted to start with that because the two questions I have is, is the risk of dementia-related illness just something we have to accept? You know, it's a risk calculation that we take just like we get in our car, or is it time for the game to take drastic action? And that's where I really want to just start throwing out a couple things and, 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 and again, Anson, Sugar, what's your initial thought on this subject? And Anson, you can go first. Oh, well, thank you. So, uh, yeah, so this uh, topic uh, has been really interesting uh, for me from the beginning. And obviously, uh, I come from both sides of the game. I started out as a men's coach at UNC in 1976 and then in 79 got a women's team and then coached both for 10 years. And then since 89, just uh, just uh, the women. But it's really interesting uh, in the women's game. This is what we would consider our biggest weakness. And there are physiological reasons for why this is a weakness in the women's game. All the research I've done and what people tell me, and please don't think that anything I'm about to share uh, are tablets handed down from Mount Sinai. I have an English and philosophy degree. So I'm going to be quoting the opinions of uh, other things uh, I've read and other people I respect. But basically, the biggest difference uh, physiologically between a man and a woman is actually the strength of the neck. And uh, one of the biggest issues in heading is if you don't have a strong neck. And the other issue with women is the fact that their skull size is a lot smaller than a male skull size. And so the concussive uh, negative effects of heading is when you don't have a stable neck or the strength to head a ball effectively. And then the ball is driven at uh, your head. And all of a sudden, uh, there's a concussive effect when your brain is bouncing around in your skull. That's what a concussion is. It's basically your brain bouncing off your own skull from getting hit so hard by something. And obviously this isn't just uh, heading the ball itself. I mean, this could be the head-to-head -head collision, which obviously is catastrophic. This could be the head-to-post collision, uh, which is also catastrophic. This could be jumping high in the air, being undercut, and then having the first thing that hits the ground to be your head. 
I mean, there are all kinds of ways to have negative concussive effect. But for me in my game, now that I'm coaching women exclusively, this is a big issue. And we talk about this as a big issue as well. In fact, it's interesting. In my last interview with Soccer America, they were asking me to evaluate the new U.S. team and the front line of Macario, uh, Pugh, and uh, Smith. And I was saying, this is an interesting uh, step into the future for the U.S. women because this is a, a non-heading forward line. And of course, as all of us know, that you know, relied on the heroics of you know, Abby Wambach at the end of a game against Brazil to head the ball in the back of the net to take it into overtime to help us win a world championship or an Olympic gold medal. Having a great header in the nine has always been a part of the U.S. personality. And now the evolution of the women's game might be going in a different direction. So now maybe we've got to get to the end line and find seams or early balls behind or basically a, a direct ball over the top uh, because of our pace. And maybe now we have to have a different way to attack the goal. And maybe that's a healthier way for us to attack the goal, maybe without, you know, sending that ball back post. And of course, in order to do that, you've got to have such a superior uh, technical and tactical team that you can get in line so you can look like a Man City or a Liverpool or some of the best men's teams in the world in order to create a chance where the shot's inside six from a ball on the ground, or uh, like those two last second, you know, goals from Man City to win the EPL with a ball back post for Gundogan to hand, and then the ball driven across the box to finish uh, from Gundogan again. And so maybe uh, our game is evolving and changing in a very positive way. Now, this is a big issue. So I work on heading every week. We've got a heading session. I vary it between a technical heading session to a finishing heading session, to a combative heading session. Obviously, the one with greatest risk is the combative heading session. As we go forward with this conversation, maybe we can talk more about the, the minutia of what we're doing. So, Sugar, one of the things that uh, is interesting is um, a little prep before, before you, you give you a chance here is, you know, soccer is a contact sport, right? So there's going to be those situations where it's supposed to have contact. And like as Anson was talking about, as soon as you put the ball in the air, not only do you have just the force of, you know, the header, which again, uh, they're starting to, to distinguish between high force headers, which are like crosses and goal kicks and you know, long goalkeeper punts, and then just other headers that we're doing that are something less than that. But it's also, you're at risk where you're, you're just putting the players where they're just, they're going for those challenges, kind of like what Anson said, the combative headers. And so every time that ball is in the air, we're now at risk for a head-to-head -head contact or head-to-ground contact, not just heading of the ball. So, and I am curious, just, just with your experience uh, growing up in Japan and all, I know, you, you, I know you're very close with the Japanese FA. In Japan, where, again, kind of like Ransom was talking about, the tactics may be a little bit different just because of the physical differences, but give us some perspective on just uh, what you found as far as heading technique and heading practice and, and heading tactics. Mike is there. Thanks for inviting me to this and indeed nice to meet you. And uh, Mr. Anson's, uh, I've known you for a long time. And then uh, actually I was in one of your coaching course and uh, advanced national diploma. Uh, you had the two days coaching and you had to go back to the coaching the national team. <laughs> that was it. Uh, and uh, um, when I got here in America in the early 2000, but uh, finally nice to meet you and have a chat with you. Uh, I've got a huge admiration to you. And then uh, thank you for coming to that on the panel is a very interesting topic to me as well I'm still a younger coach <laughs> to be fair <laughs> and then I don't have that many years and like you guys have experience and then uh, um, I do know the Japanese football association people the experience I had in back in, in Japan um, we started to do the head in the ball 
I was about six, seven years old uh, when I was growing up. And then uh, at that time, there was no conversation about concussions or anything like that. I believe we had that techniques when we were on an early stage before 10 years old. I started to play soccer, probably. Uh, my father was a coach. So I would say eight, nine years old, uh, I just started to get very serious about the game. So by that point, we did have the heading session almost every day. So just to put the chin down or like, however that you, you guys learned. And the same way as we did that too. I did go to Europe. Um, so when I grew, when I was growing up, I felt like a heading was not the something I've never thought this type of the conversation would be opened, concussions and all this stuff. To be perfectly honest with you, uh, um, I was quite probably um, quite ignorant. Uh, I didn't even think about those head injuries, anything like that. I always believed as long as you have a proper technique to head the ball, um, you don't get basically injured since there. Um, and some mentions about that, how do you call it, physiological part of it or like a medical side of the information. And that's quite new to me since I started to learn about this concussions and when the rule was implemented in America. I did talk to that more than a few coaches in Japan. They do not have any, actually, the, uh, rules uh, up to like a 10 years old, uh, like in America. But I do feel after I had a chat with more than a few coaches, a coach in the youth level, uh, they actually avoid any type of heading sessions when they are growing up, like, say, for instance, seven, eight, nine, those year around. Also, there was a debate in Japan, and I'm sure in America as well, when they reach 10, 11, 12, that they usually form their body. And that's that usually a golden age to learn how to play the games, any type of sport. Um, when they don't learn anything by that point, 10, 11, 12, a lot of them don't have a proper techniques. Well, I came in America and then I started to use the different type of the soccer balls. It's deflated much like a softer. So they start to learn how to do that proper techniques. That's a type of that, I would say, like a phase that I have been in uh, America so far. Appreciate it. And part of the research, the, the direction the research is going is the number of headers, or is it the type of header, or is it both? I'll just share a couple of things that I had learned uh, recently, and that is you know, the 1966 England World Cup winning squad, 50% have uh, died of dementia-related illness, which is significantly greater than the general population. And it, it's interesting because it really comes out to about three to five times greater than the general population, which is what the latest field study also came out in their study, not with death, but with dementia-related illness. And so um, one of the things, like you mentioned, was uh, a different inflated ball just for the practice, because either I have to get the technique correctly and I can't be fearful of the ball, or maybe is there something to it that if I just not getting the same force on the ball as I would with a fully inflated ball. Our program at Belmont Abbey this spring we did a lot of training with those very soft balls you would buy like at Target or Walmart that the kids would use like just as a, a playground kind of ball, a really soft ball, just to get reps of doing it correctly and to develop some of that neck strength as uh, Anton had talked about. We did the same thing with our strength and conditioning coach was to try to increase some, some neck strengthening exercises so that again, by the same time we were working on more technique, because as you said, if we cut the number of reps in training, how do we get the technique down? Because these kids aren't coming with the same 
heading skills that say they, they would have in the past, or we're going to see that wave of athletes coming to us here very shortly. And I think that's what we were seeing is that uh, either they, they did not have the technique coming in or they've lost it since I inherited them because we weren't doing enough technical training with the head because I'm concerned about repetitive heading. I don't want to put them at risk, but at the same time, if we're going to do it, we have to practice it. Anson, are you familiar with that the game that was played in England last summer where they took a bunch of ex-pros and they played with a, a first half, you could not head the ball uh, at all. And then the second half, you could only head the ball in the penalty area. Did you ever, did you hear discussion about that? No. It was fascinating because they the, basically the first five minutes, as you can imagine, the first ball that was played into the air, they went up and headed it with you know, <laughs> in all their glory, you know, loving to do that. And then they went, oh, sorry, that we're not, we can't head the ball. And then after about five minutes, you could even tell that that the law change had, had changed. You know, the, the game adjusted. People got used to it. You just let the ball, you know, you took it off your chest or you let the ball run or whatever. And then in the second half, when they played where you can only head the ball in the penalty area, what they found was uh, it looked just like the, the game you see today. It's just that now that since you've limited it just to the penalty area, just the number of times that you head the ball in any given period of time is going to be less because you're not heading it in other areas of the field. That game was sponsored by uh, uh, Bill Gates Foundation, and they were looking to see are there things that could be done to the game to just maybe lower the, the chances where you're, you're not going to be in a combative heading situation and maybe, again, just limit the number of head-to-head -head contacts. And so it kind of goes back to two things. Do we modify the laws, which is that's a big bureaucracy and there's got to be studies to back that up, or do we change some of the training practices, which kind of like what you were saying, can we strengthen their necks? Can we get reps with maybe lighter balls? I know, Shug, you had mentioned that Arizona State, you guys have a a bag of balls that's less inflated. And you, you had heard that Florida State was doing the same thing in their training. They had a separate bag of balls. Anson, do you want to comment just uh, maybe other things that you've done other than just the, trying to make sure the technique is good? We also follow a similar philosophy with the way you pump the ball up. So there are these wonderful pumps you can get now where you can literally set the whatever standards you like. Based on what day it is, we rotate through four different heading circuits. And we do that one day a week on average. And some of the days, there's absolutely no risk uh, because we're doing these fundamental heading days. The fundamental heading day is so passive. And all we're trying to do is to teach them the, the correct technique. Obviously, since we're the University of North Carolina, we set this up as a competition. And here's the way it works. Basically, the whole team is on the end line. They all have a ball in their hands and they throw the ball up in the air. They can't throw it forward because what they're going to do now is the first header is they're going to use the left side of their head to head it as far as they can. Then they're going to run up to the ball wherever it stops, and then they're going to throw it up from there, and now they're going to use the right side of their head and let it roll until it stops, and then throw it up for the third time and jump and use the middle of their head and headed as far as they can. And they don't have to jump, they can stay on the ground because basically what you're trying to teach them to do is the whipping action of smashing it with the left side of your head, the right side of your head and heading it forward. So we're teaching them just fundamental technique and it's a competition. So the ball that rolls the furthest is the winner all the way ranked down to the ball that you know doesn't go anywhere. And there's a direct correlation in this very simple exercise as to whether or not your technique's any good. And what we talk about is for heading with power. 
for heading with power, the biggest mistake a poor header makes is they head the ball at the end of their heading arc. In other words, they do have this whipping motion of the head as they start to move towards the ball. But then with about an eighth of an inch left, they finally head the ball and there's no power left. So what we try to get them to do is to head the ball in the middle of their heading arc for power. And we can critique them very easily by letting them know there's no power because it's the end of your arc and most poor headers head at the end of their arc. So that's sort of fundamental heading day. And by the way, fundamental heading day is just followed fundamental heading warm up which is, you know, you lying on the ground on your elbows with someone kneeling in front of you, throwing the ball at your head. And the biggest problem we have in this exercise is not the header. For some reason, the girl can't throw the ball to someone's head from two feet away with their elbows on the ground. They end up throwing the ball over their heads. And of course, the bloody problem is these are all one-dimensional athletes. They've never played basketball in their lives. They've never had a ball in their hands in their lives. And so we go around teasing them because they can't even throw the ball for a heading exercise. But they go from elbows to sitting to kneeling to standing. And then standing is left foot forward, right foot forward, two feet together, and then jumping. So you got the whole circuit from fundamental heading all the way through standing and jumping. And that's fundamental heading. And then it becomes more advanced. Getting back to the, you know, the way you uh, pump your balls up, we allow uh, any of four levels of, of the ball being pumped. And by the way, before every single game, I will check the ball. And based on the referees I have, if these are uh, referees that are accustomed to uh, refereeing the men's game, they want the balls pumped up. And what I try to tell them is, no, you don't want these balls pumped up. The girls and women don't like to head these balls that are frigging rocks. So we've sucked some of the air out of them. So this is where we want it to go. And invariably, we'll end up with, you know, some coach we're playing against that likes the balls really pumped up because obviously he, he doesn't have this sort of discussion on a regular basis like we're having. And he doesn't understand the potential threat with this dementia issue if we have the balls pumped up too high. But during this exercise, which is called heading for distance, we have a server about, you know, 30 to 35 yards away that's serving a flighted ball into the player. Now they're heading it as far as they can. And here's where they get to pick the density of the ball. So the girls that are very comfortable heading and don't feel any concussive effects can pick the regulation ball. Then they can go all the way down to a ball that's you know barely regulation to head uh, based on their comfort. And the girls that are the weakest headers always pick the softest balls, the balls that are closest to volleyball level. And I completely endorse this. We don't tease them. You know, we want them to feel comfortable heading the ball properly. And I could go through all the other heading exercises we do, but those are the two extremes. The combative one is a risk because now uh, I'm on your back, Mike. I'm on the midstripe. Someone's serving a ball from the, the 18, and I've got to head it back where it came from as the defender. You've got to flick it past me as the attacker. And then we switch positions. Now I'm the attacker. You're the defender. And we used to do like best of five. And now we're down to best of three. Why? For fewer potential catastrophic moments of a head-to-head -head and lowering the number of headers in a practice. And then a part of the practice as well on heading day can be uh, rather than one of those two things we've just uh, shared about, just balls in the flank and you're finishing on goal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, but I could go on forever about all the different heading exercises we do, but basically we're interested in developing the proper technique as a priority. You're not gonna really affect neck strength that much. And for some reason, getting the women in the, in the weight room and having them do, 
you know, neck strengthening exercises, they all either uh, don't want to do it or they do it so passively. They're all afraid of looking like, you know, some sort of, you know, weightlifter. Uh, they all have this body image terror of, you know, changing their physiology by developing thick necks. And so you're going to get no buy-in there. But let me tell one other story about the evolution of the game. Because when I was the, uh, uh, a young uh, a women's national coach, in one of our first uh, foreign uh, games in Italy, all the coaches got together because we could see this heading thing was a big problem in the women's game. And we all knew this was a big problem because everyone, every country in the world with these national team coaches uh, would uh, say the same things. We're miserable headers, we're miserable headers, we're miserable headers. And so I chatted with Andy Caruso, who was the founder of Quick Goal, to develop a ball for women. And so I would have a bag of these balls for every women's national team practice. And it was really interesting. Our girls wanted to fashion themselves as so tough they hated uh, playing with what they called the girly ball. And they, they had a very condescending uh, attitude towards it. And sure enough, <clears throat> the ball sailed a bit. So it wasn't the perfect ball. It didn't you know, act like a regular ball, but they all ignored it and poo-pooed it until we had a heading session. And then you would see these girls diving all over the field to make sure during the heading session, they were heading a girly ball. So it's really interesting. In the public forum, they pretended like they were never going to use the girly ball. But when a heading session rolled around, these unbelievable, unbelievably tough women, and you know these women, Dean Linky, Michelle Akers, you know, Lori Henry, these are frigging tough women. Uh, now, all of a sudden, every one of them wanted to head the girly ball. So uh, uh, there's some, you know, vignettes and stories and uh, some of the stuff that we do. Anson, I remember those players as if they were playing in my backyard just yesterday. You actually created my love for the game. We've got a great topic heading into the future, led by the great Mike Lynch, along with Anson and Sugar. We'll be back with more United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by League Apps after this. Does it feel like all you're doing to manage your team, club, or league is busy work? If so, League Apps can help you get back to doing what you love, delivering a powerful yet simple youth sports management platform from robust registration and payment tools to automated communications and other software integrations. League Apps saves you time and headaches. Less busy work, more time doing what you love. Go to leagueapps.com to learn more. League Apps is proud to be the presenting sponsor of the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. The topic today, heading into the future, a very heady topic indeed, particularly as we look for solutions. With that, we turn it back to the great Mike Lynch. Hey, thank you. And so as we talk about uh, maybe stuff down the road, I just want to throw out a couple more stats from this field study that was reported in JAMA Neurology 2021. And that was, the risk was found to be position specific. So all the outfield players had a, a 3.98 uh, increased risk. So basically a four times risk. And the defenders were five, midfielders were four and a half, forwards were uh, just under three, uh, where the goalkeepers were under two. And so again, it, it doesn't definitively say why what's going on, except that maybe the number of headers or the number of uh, combative headers could be for sure um, in those situations with those center backs, you know, uh, contesting for those long goal kicks, the long punts, the balls that are being served in into the into the penalty area. 
They don't know still, and they're doing more studies on just to figure out what exactly is it? Is it the number? Is it the you know repetitive number? Is it the number of just high ones? Or is it the number you know where you actually um, got concussive symptoms? One of the things that I find really interesting is that now we, we can diagnose it better. We have our preseason impact tests. So we have a baseline. And then when they, it looks like a potential head injury, the athletic trainer is gonna run them through a quick test to see where they are. And then they can go and take their, their impact test again. What my experience has been is a concussion, unlike when I was a player, you know, we got our bell rung and we, were, we played the rest of that game. We usually played the next day as well. We didn't stay out very long. And if we did stay out, it, it was not more than a couple of days. And I find now that as a minimum, it's, it's almost like a high ankle sprain as far as the duration. It's not a, a, you know, a tweak in your muscle where you may be out one to two weeks. It's going to be two to three weeks, sometimes even longer. I checked with our trainers this year from the fall. Our average duration was out 15 days. Uh, we had five in the protocol at one time, actually. It was, it was unbelievable. But um, you talk about losing players. And so then I thought, boy, I don't want to lose them in practice as well. And, uh, and so just the idea of how do we mitigate that risk where we get the technique, we give them the confidence, yet at the same time, are we hopefully not exposing them to too many headers or an actual, you know, head to head or head to ground uh, injury? Doug, like what, what, what are you guys doing at Arizona State that, that maybe would uh, be able to solve both, get good technique, yet at the same time, maybe not put them at increased risk? Being in Arizona State five and a half years, uh, heading was uh, always an issue, as the answer mentions, that centre-back positions, usually the toughest positions, not just only for the forwards, um, it's just uh, when the goalkeeper punts the ball. And then uh, we started to use... Um, uh, Anton, we didn't... We, uh, you're such a creative that I didn't know those games, actually, to get a point, which, which is really great. I think I would love to use that as well, but um, mainly that we did have the technical part of it um, with the uh, um, deflated ball. And then uh, actually it's interesting. I got to um, universities uh, Southern California. That I, just got, I just got a USC last week. I was doing an inventory of the soccer, soccer balls and all this stuff. And I actually found not just deflated soccer ball, actually the heading soccer ball is a much lighter, it's like a volleyball type of the lightness. Mm -hmm. um, it was airs in it, but um, that's such a idea. I was quite surprised that actually the soccer ball they are selling it that probably Anton was mentioning. I believe that technical part is starting to get better. My part was just uh, we didn't obviously we didn't do any training with the next anything like that at all. We did a proper um, physical conditioning, but we didn't have. And I totally agree with you that they. I do not believe it. Female players, female players don't want to do that neck type of the exercise only. So we combine together with the whole body session um, techniques to it. I start to find improvement uh, in terms of like heading. The only things we start to feel was, um, I would say more like administ administrative side of it. I felt that each trainer, even at Arizona State or even uh, being in before Brevard and Division Two schools became Division Three, but it, each trainer has different protocols. So you're absolutely right that um, we try to do on our end on the soccer field, but also that each institution or each training head coach, head trainers 
they have a different way of seeing these concussion issues. There was a game we played against California at Cal, and our players in the same game, she got hit the ball in a 50-50. She did not feel well, so she got out. Athletic trainer pulled her out for the whole entire game, so she did not play. Same game in the second half, the player from Cal got head injury, well, head 50-50 head. Or, oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. I think that was a, she got hit the ball, had really close range. So she had to come out, but within 20 minutes, she got back on the field. And those two are the head type of the injuries, but I felt each trainer, each institution, it, there is no, like a, I felt like a universal rules or anything. I just really feel not just the only the soccer field, how you train the players to get better, but also the athletic training part we I really would like to see that some type of the um, proper rules and then implementing the administrative rules that so we can protect the players, but also that there is no like um, misunderstanding of this concussion. After that game, we went to the athlete training department and to educate ourselves as a coach to learn what's the protocol, how many days. I really do think that type of education needs to happen more often towards the uh, coaching staff or any levels, understanding in the athletic training department as well as the coaching department. So I just really see that Arizona State, when I was in a five and a half years, we still have an issue, but it, it, I saw the improvement, but also there was a little misunderstanding about this injury, this concussion. It just coaching staff always want the players to put the back as quick as possible but trainers that side and needs to protect. We would like to protect the players. Safety is the number one, of course. I just really feel that there needs to be more corroborations and understand each other so we can not just to play the game, but also protect the players at the same time. The Hippocratic Oath, you know, first do no harm. And so they're, they need to always, you know, that player safety to make sure that that is taken care of. And so that those protocols are there. Every situation, like you said, is, is going to be unique. We know in the women's game, say, that uh, women are at more risk for ACL injuries. And so we have all kinds of ACL prevention protocols that we put into our warm-up, into our daily you know, routines, in order to do the best we can to hopefully not put them as much risk for injury. And so, you know, it, are we at a point where kind of like uh, um, where we, you know, we need to, what can we do in order to uh, minimize the risk of either, again, uh, combative head collision or just uh, you know too many repetitive high force ones, whether a game or practice. Is are there things that we could be doing just to put them in a position to put themselves at less risk? Anson, anything else that that you can think of that has been similar to what we would do, say like FIFA Plus, you know, we FIFA 11 Plus that we incorporate into uh, into ACL prevention. Well, yes, and and actually, uh, as all of us know, the game is going in that direction. Uh, because um, it was interesting. Uh, I think there was a study, and you guys might have a, a better access to it uh, than I would, but uh, in the old days, the Norwegian game, men and women, was a direct game. And so I think a lot of the original concern that uh, we had in our soccer culture for the negative effect of uh, heading these direct balls came from I think a study done on the uh, Norwegian first division men. It was an incredibly direct game they were playing. So almost every ball you got, you would smash it uh, over the top 
And try to have your strikers um, rush in behind the other team if you're a, a Norwegian first division player. So as a result, not only were all their center backs and outside backs very good at heading, but also all the forwards were very good at trying to flick balls on. And, and this was basically a very direct game. And that was the game that Norway played back in the day. Even on the women's side, they played a very serious direct game. And as a result, they were very effective. And one of the reasons the Norwegians were so effective with their direct game is, first of all, they had a wonderful culture for women's athletics. And the further north you go in Europe, basically the cultures have a more embracing environment for uh, women leadership and women's sports uh, which is why it's so interesting right now when you're watching NATO embrace uh, uh, the possibility of bringing Finland and Sweden into uh, NATO. So many of the figures you see are women, because uh, even if you had no understanding of basically women's football in the world, you could do a pretty damn good job of ranking the teams in the world based on the cultural freedom and leadership platforms that women have in these different cultures. The further south you go in Europe, the more chauvinistic the cultures become. And now obviously that's changing a bit with Spain and Italy starting to produce uh, elite players on the women's side. And I think those two teams were the most improved in the last World Cup. But it's really interesting if you go back to that original Norway study, and it was because not only the concussive problems with the center back heading direct balls, but every ball that was played in that Norwegian first division was a ball smashed as hard as it could be smashed by one of the four backs of the goalkeepers. And then there was another potentially, you know, catastrophic heading duel at the other end of the field. And then if you won it, did you play it to your six who turned and changed the point of the attack? No, you would get the ball and smash it right back at the other team's back line. And so my guess is if you did this study, that first division in Norway, those guys are in real jeopardy. So the one thing that is saving us to a degree is the evolution of the game, because now it's all about playing through the lines. It's all about changing the point of the attack. But that's why it's interesting that uh, a game, you said, uh, the rules were interesting because eventually, I think if you want to score a goal and you don't have the talent of Man City or Liverpool to get the ball to the end line to cut it back for a a shot inside 12 or a bent ball across the back the way De Bruyne did to Gundogan to win the game. Almost everything has to be in the air if you don't have the skill set to basically get the ball in the box on the ground, which is why I like that, that rule to basically preserve the game. Because holy cow, if you have people that really can't beat people off the dribble, you're going to have to serve the box. And combinational play up the center is so hazardous in terms of losing possession. But I think the game, Mike, is pushing us in the right direction. There are less and less of uh, the direct ball. Not that we don't see it on occasion. We certainly do. But I think the game itself is helping to protect us more and more. Let me throw out another couple of things because I want to get all this stuff in because uh, I have an incredible background in this because uh, Kevin Guskowitz, who's our current chancellor, won a MacArthur Genius Award when he was a researcher. And what was his research? His research were concussion studies. And so he did that here at the University of North Carolina. So we were one of the first schools to have a protocol for concussion. And of course, I have to be completely transparent. I was very angry with this. This is before, you know, the, the research was finally, finally telling us how bad this could be for us uh, because our uh, protocols for concussion were so much more aggressive than any other team we played against. Uh, why? Because the experts on this in the world were researching at the University of North Carolina. 
And so all of a sudden our protocols were, you know, if some hair follicle from the other team's head hit your head, all of a sudden you're out for a month. I mean, that's the way I looked at it as a paranoid coach about, you know, you're taking away any sort of competitive equity when all of a sudden our, our concussion protocol is so aggressive. And why is it aggressive? Because our researchers knew the problem and no one else really did. Because as you say, back in the day, you know, uh, are you okay? Well, I see stars. Well, uh, you know, uh, what day is it? Well, I, I think it's, you know, uh, you know, uh, Friday. Isn't that when we play our games? Yeah, it is Friday. Great. You're back in there. So, you know, the old concussion protocol is, you know, how many fingers am I holding up? You know, uh, three or four. Yeah, three or four. Well done. Get back in the game. So uh, the original protocols were so casual. And what I didn't appreciate at the time was how, how spot on Kevin Guskowitz and our original protocols uh, should have been. And uh, finally, uh, I was won over when they kept showing me the research they were doing. And I think right now our game is taking us in the right direction because it's still a big concern of mine, which is why we've got basically, you know, one heading practice during the week. And I rotate it through these completely passive exercises of you throwing the ball to yourself to the combative thing. So the combative thing we only do, you know, once every four weeks. And so we rotate through all these different things. We have balls pumped at different levels and we work on fundamental technique all the time. And why? Because I'm completely sold on, on, on this. And the reasons as well as in the, the WSA days when I was the color commentator, there was a collision between Cindy Parlo and Charmaine Hooper, two of the most aggressive and powerful players in the world with a head collision that was absolutely catastrophic. And Cindy Parlow talks about, you know, her concussion issues. And I think we all have to be very, very careful and cognizant of this as a problem. But I'm proud to say, obviously, uh, Cindy seems to be fine uh, because, oh my gosh, look at the legislation that's through now where talk about gender equity and equal pay. What she has done as a leader uh, for U.S. soccer has been absolutely extraordinary. But we all have to be very careful about this conversation we're having, but also implementing this in the most positive way in our environments to make uh, the game safer for the kids that uh, we all care for. Yeah, making the game safe is so important. You know, one of the things I learned as I was kind of as I was navigating from last fall to this spring and we have to do something different because of the situation that we were in um, as far as uh, concussions was I learned that and I didn't even realize this and I feel like I follow the game pretty closely compared to the, you know, the, just people around the country. And the FA had come out with guidelines for the Premier League, for the women's, you know, the Women's Super League, and said only 10 high force headers per week in training. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have, I have, I've never heard somebody give a number. I've never heard somebody say once per week. And so that just kind of raised my, uh, my level of awareness to say, uh, we should be doing these sessions, as you mentioned, uh, just, you know, periodically. And when we do kind of keep track and, and if somebody's done a couple, two, three, four headers in a row that came in off a cross where that ball was coming in with some really good pace on it, that probably that person's done right now. They can resume training, you know, the next time we go do these, these, uh, crosses in, but, uh, I do think it's a, it's a topic that we can make a huge impact with just a little bit of changes while the game does evolve and the game does get to be on the ground. The surfaces are better that teams are playing on. Sometimes that was the original excuse, the weather and or the surface. So again, I think that hopefully that in the future, we're just not going to see as much. This has been great hearing uh, what, what you guys have been doing. 
any closing comments that you guys think would be uh, important to share so that uh, people maybe again are thinking along the right way to, to how, how do we navigate this course where if it's not banned, then how do we do it so that we can keep our players safe and keep them from long-term injury? Let me uh, finish with this from my perspective. I think there is something we can do. I think uh, maybe in the women's game, we can actually legislate the number that you would put into your air pump for the women's game that would be two to three numbers lower than the men's game. And I think if we could legislate that, I think that would be very positive for the women's game. Now, obviously, uh, we have so many purists that, in my opinion, get in the way for progress in our game. But I think if we could, uh, you know, recruit uh, uh, the safety protocols, but also uh, let the referees know that we've got this pump uh, that'll pump up the balls to a certain level, maybe have that as a maximum in the women's game. So you don't uh, go around the country uh, with different coaches and different referees having the balls pumped up uh, like rocks, uh, the way we sometimes have to navigate a game in the women's game, which I think is absolutely absurd. I think that will protect the women. I don't think it interferes with the quality of the game. So I think from a a political perspective, and uh, Michael, I'm obviously laying this in your lap because at my age, uh, I'm going to try to go golfing at every opportunity. So I'm going to leave all the heavy lifting to you and to Dean Linky, who still looks pretty young. So uh, I'm leaving it to you guys. And actually, Sugar, you look as young as those two, uh, you know, sitting next to you. So I'm leaving it up to the three of you. But I think politically, we should have a demand that in the women's game, here is the highest level that you can pump a ball up to in the women's game. And then what that'll do as well is it'll also tell all the coaches across the country in the women's game where their balls have to be pumped up to in practice, which my guess might be below the average of where they are right now. So I think we could start a political movement from the United Soccer Coaches. And Dean is right. This is an organization I absolutely love. It's apolitical. It's it's basically, it supports the game and the people in the game in a way that's extraordinary. It doesn't have to genuflect to, you know, FIFA. It doesn't have to genuflect to all these powers that be that, you know, have this huge fear uh, we're destroying the, the uh, I guess, the traditional game because we're not. We're just trying to improve it. And so for me, I think that would be a wonderful uh, change. I'd love to leave up uh, to you, Mike and Dean and Sugar. I appreciate that. I think that I, I thought about a very similar things every time when we have got a game, official comes to say, check the numbers on it. And to be honest, that's a, the official ones are 11. 11 MPS, it's really hard, even like a, a men for ourselves, and I really do think it's political side of it, and then, and medically that once that uh, answer mentioned like uh, how the physiologically the females at the body is different structured by the males. I really do think that we we should take a medical point of view is very heavily, or we should really need to consider that type of that implementing the new rules that part of not just uh, divided the female and males, but I really do think both male and female needs to really have the proper protocols. What we are trying to do on the field, what we need to do as a coaching staff, including the strength and conditioning coach, I I really do feel that organization can implement the new rules, not just the coaches part, but officials, administrators, athletic training teams, and that all each entity and department can definitely combine together. As I mentioned, I come from Japan, even though we did learn a lot of heading when we are kid, we actually didn't use that much uh, comparing, comparing to some of the tall, powerful, 
gigantic Western yeah, uh, Western people. Um, that we Japanese, we, we are definitely shorter, smaller. Uh, in, not just the Japanese, the Asian in general. Um, so what if you saw the 2011 when national team won their games? Yes, yeah, so that heading was fantastic from Sawa, and then uh, definitely that area of the game is an exciting part of the games, of course. But if you really see it, we rarely put the ball in air because we do not have a players like Abby Wambach that can hit score a goal to like a, make it to like a tie game. But at the end of the day, we won the game at a penalty shootout. We know what we can do. So what we have to do, we need to get superior in the technical side of the games. So first touch controlling the ball, how you put the ball from the air to on the ground. I really do think the games itself, as Anson mentioned, is going that direction. Yes, it's exciting. The ball is in the air, coming from the crosses, just the head in the ball and in the back of the net. It's a fantastic. That's the part of the games we obviously enjoy, but also that we really need to see the medical side of it, especially for the future. Yes, I'm the youngest one. I would say that I really have the uh, thought in, in myself that the beautiful games uh, should not be destroyed by the certain medical part or ignorant part of that or coaches, administrators, athletic trainers, every part of it. And that, that might be, I just thought in my head, including the companies or the people who make actually the soccer ball and then how they build the soccer ball, mm. how they try to really see that side of the games in a concussion head injury is a huge part of it. To have a safer environment for the kids to play, practice, enjoy the game, they might not, they don't need to go to a collegiate level or even professional level, but to, I really enjoy them being this organization, United Soccer, used with the coach soccer, coaches associations coming from Japan and even I'm a foreigner, I've been welcomed. I've been blessed to be in uh, this type of the environment, get to know you guys, of course. I felt that coaches, the people in this association and organization is, has got great thought in their minds. I really do believe we can promote this sport, not just only for the professional people, but grassroots people who literally enjoy the games up to all the way to 60, 70 years old. My father has a games a team, he can't play anymore, but in Japan we do have that 60s, 70s, 80s. I've seen some of the 80s, 85 years old and 90 years old players keep the soccer but enjoy. So we would like to go the direction. I definitely agree with what Anson said and all that. Mike and then the deans um, having this type of the forum, hopefully we can have more understanding of gaming in the future and to protect our sports for the future. That's awesome, Shogun. I feel like I'm at a point that, uh, we, in fact, we even kind of adopted a saying in our team this spring, no big or bad headers. We modified our, our approach on which balls we were going to challenge for, which balls we weren't. And I found that it didn't change the game. We actually learned to win the second ball more effectively because we knew that's, that's what we were doing. We kept the ball more on the ground versus, you know, launching the ball up and, you know, that kind of stuff. And so I just feel like even if it it's not scientific, it's very anecdotal. I feel like at least we're trying to do our best to not only promote the game in a very positive way for the game, game to continue to grow, but certainly don't put our players at risk. And, and uh, so I've been excited about at least the results that we had this spring as we were trying to mitigate the risk without losing the game. So all the data is in the men. And so the women's data will be coming, you know, as, as those, those studies are done and the, and the women are now 
at the age where some of these things will start showing up. And so while we're waiting on that data, and I would think of it at best, it would be the same, and at worst, it would be worse, which tells us we, we, we probably need to be doing something. And if people just even think about it a little bit, then I think our, our task today was, uh, was uh, a positive, was, was accomplished. And so that, again, we can keep our players safe, keep the game exciting, and start knowing the direction we want to go to head into the future. All right. Phenomenal takes from Mike Lynch, as well as Sugar and the legendary Anson Dorrance. And Anson, before we let you go, coming up next, Mike Lynch will spend time with Paul Gardner, the longtime columnist for Soccer America, who is never afraid to give his take. What do you expect to hear from Paul? Yeah, I mean, I know all about uh, Paul Gardner because actually uh, we've attended events together and uh, he has obviously been a very uh, big critic of the American game. And he's been sort of a lobbyist for the Latin game. And so I know what you're going to uh, hear from him. He's going to talk about uh, basically the most beautiful aspects of the beautiful game because he's been a, a proponent of the Latin game forever, always being critical of the United States for not adopting this as sort of a philosophy of, of player development, always you know, mentioning different ways that we can make our game a bit more Latin. And so I think uh, what we're going to get from Paul, which will be very positive, is along the lines of what Sugar was sharing, which is, holy cow, did the Japanese do something extraordinary by emphasizing that, yes, you know, we can win this game uh, this way. We can win it uh, with close control. We can win it with possession. We can win it with the challenge of taking an air game the other team is playing and converting it into a ground game as fast as possible. And the Japanese are part of the evolution of the international game and a part of, yes, you can win it with this one aspect alone uh, because uh, they didn't have the athletic platform on average uh, competing with the other teams. They didn't have the height on average and competing with the other teams. They won games technically and tactically. And the game was actually going in that direction while the Japanese were winning. And what was the, the example on the men's side? It was uh, Barcelona. It was tiki-taki soccer. It was, you know, the maximum length of your pass is five yards and it's keeping possession. And, you know, if the other team doesn't have the ball, they can't score a goal. And so many of the good things about what Japan introduced on the women's side are about what uh, Paul's going to talk about. He's going to, I think, bring in uh, the Latin side of the game in a very positive way. And uh, I think he's going to have a perspective that's going to be very good. But the thing I also admire about uh, uh, him is he is critical. And we need, uh, we need the critics. Uh, even uh, when there were moments when I disagreed with him, on different issues. I read his column. I read it knowing that he was going to be blowing us up, us, you know, soccer coaches in some fashion. But I knew in reading it, uh, I was either going to develop a counterpoint because I disagreed with him, or I was going to say, you know what? He's right. And so I think the coolest thing about you guys bringing him onto the panel is, first of all, he's not going to be afraid uh, to tell all of us what he thinks. So from that perspective, I love the man. And then the other thing, he's cerebral enough for whatever he says, even if you disagree with it, he's going to be able to uh, uh, tell you exactly why he has this opinion. And it's going to be laced with, I think, a good supporting argument that's going to cause you to say, you know what, he's making a good point. So I love the fact uh, you've embraced him. And actually, I'm looking forward to, I guess, tuning back in uh, to hear this after you've uh, 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 made him a part of the conversation, because I think uh, having him a part of the conversation uh, 
uh, Michael and Dean was a wonderful choice. And so, uh, yeah, I really, uh, I really respect the man. Thank you, Anson. Thank you, Sugar, for being on the show. Really appreciate it. Uh, thanks so much, guys. Uh, honor to meet you guys all. And then uh, I'm, I'm very, very uh, interested in this part, but also that I'm absolutely honored to be in this type of that environment. And then uh, we can make the, this games better. Yeah, Sugar, uh, Dean, and Michael, I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. As you guys can tell, uh, uh, I love these kinds of conversations. It always forces me to think. And I love the United Soccer Coaches for having this sort of form on a regular basis. And so, gentlemen, thank you very much. Thoroughly enjoyed myself. Okay, with that, when we return, Mike Lynch and Paul Gardner with more on the issue of heading in soccer right here on the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Lee Gaps. United Soccer Coaches Advanced Diplomas have long been regarded as an excellent way to expand your coaching knowledge, advance your career, and improve your player's development. Now, with our blended format that incorporates online and in-person learning, coaches with ever-demanding schedules can earn their diploma in the most time-friendly way possible. Visit unitedsoccercoaches.org slash advanced-diplomas for more information. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Lee Gaps. We have a big time topic called heading into the future, all about heading in the game of soccer. And we've added a special guest, the Hall of Famer, Paul Gardner for Soccer America now joins Mike Lynch. Paul, welcome to our podcast on heading into the future. We're so thrilled to have you on. I know you have a wealth of experience and a lot to offer on this topic. Yeah, I've been writing about it, you know, on and off. You don't do it every week, obviously, um, since quite a long time, like 25 years ago, I think, was the first column I I did on it. And I'm sorry to say that nobody seems to be listening. That's the challenge, but I do think there's a lot of information coming out that uh, maybe there's there's some momentum that uh, that uh, now with this new field study and, and other things that are coming about that uh, people are really starting to listen. What do you think? Yes, I say yes to all of that with one exception. The people who aren't listening are the most important people, the key people, and that is in the, the soccer biggies, the people who run FIFA, who run the international board, who run the English FA, and so on. We, we haven't had a any sort of constructive or any, never mind constructive, any statement from them which directly addresses this issue. They've skirted around it time and time again. If you ask me straightforward, what have they done to confront this issue and to try and minimize heading, the answer is nothing, absolutely dead flat nothing. You know, Paul, they talk about often, you know, you recover from fractures and tears, but uh, brain injuries, sometimes you don't recover from, and sometimes you don't even know until later on. I know you've mentioned before Terry Butcher and his injury uh, playing for England, those kinds of examples. How, How does that relate? Terry Butcher, not because he wanted to, but simply because of that photograph, a famous photograph of him covered in blood where he had a pretty bad head injury and was bleeding, was was bandaged, and went back into the game. The blood seeped through the bandage and covered his shirt, turned it red. And he sort of became a poster boy for, you know, tough it out. Don't, uh, don't sit down, just get on with it. But you listen to Terry Butcher now, and he's telling us the game could be played without heading. 
And of course, he's right. Of course it could. Does it need to be? Well, that's what we need to establish. And nothing that I've seen or heard from the soccer biddies suggests that that is what they are looking into. They are simply looking into ways of finding a method of prolonging the life of heading in the sport. And I think that's the wrong approach. I think they've got to accept right from the start that soccer without heading is an option. I don't like the sound of it, but I don't like the sound of all the amnesia and the brain damage and possible death, certainly shortened lives, terrible existence, awful for their near relatives. I don't like the sound of that either. And if it's one question, you get the question, is, is it one or the other? What do you think has to happen first in order to go that, down that path? I think, first of all, we need, some, we need somebody in authority, some authoritative voice. Logically, it should be the head of FIFA. Next in line, I think, would come the International Football Association Board, but I don't really have any hope from them at all. They have to be the most somnolent, reactionary body involved in anything I've ever been involved in in journalism. They prefer to do nothing. They, I mean, when I tell you that as far as the wording of the, of the rules of soccer go, the term ungentlemanly conduct, which is straight out of the Victorian era when the rules were first formulated, was only removed from the rules finally in 1996. That's nearly 100 years of ungentlemanly conduct before it was replaced by unsporting behavior. That's the pace at which they work. So I don't really expect much from them. FIFA, I could hope for. UEFA, I could hope for. The English FA, there's a big question mark there simply because they're English and they seem to be much more keen on heading than anybody else. And I really genuinely believe that even the most intelligent people there seem to find the the whole idea of, of soccer without heading as, um, oh, I think it, to them it goes against nature. They, 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 they can barely conceive it. Paul, what, what do you think is the, the price of delay, though? I mean, and, and before you became a you know world-famous journalist, you were a pharmacy uh, journal editor and, and worked in pharmacy, so you, you've been around the medical world. What risk are we willing to take while we wait for the data? Um, I, I would draw the parallel. I don't know whether people remember this anymore with what happened with tobacco and um, lung cancer when the tobacco industry, very powerful, very rich, able to employ as many top lawyers as, uh, as they wanted to, were able to delay uh, the recognition of the issue for quite a long time with some, with some very, very clever tactics, spreading doubt about the validity of the research, so on and so on and so on. Until finally, their case collapsed really under the weight of their own, uh, well, they were lies. Um, but what was going on and what made that so bad was that while they were delaying it, people were dying and they could have stopped that. Now, if you translate that uh, to the soccer situation, there are allegedly some 240 million soccer players in this world. When one of them gets a bad head injury, he'd better be a top professional player. Otherwise, we're not going to hear about it. Now, top professional players constitute, I don't know, maybe 100,000 of 240 million. So, in other words, a very, very small minority. Out there somewhere are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of boys and girls who are playing soccer 
under conditions that uh, would not be recognized by anybody in England, the United States, any advanced country, under pretty bad conditions, if you like, what used to be called third world countries. I worry enormously about what's happening to those kids. I think there's a lot of injuries happening out there. There have to be, and we don't know about them. And the only way you can stop that is to change the rules of the game and tell them you've got to stop heading. Because when I wrote my first uh, heading story, I, I read it <clears throat> last night to make sure that I could remember what I'd written, and I didn't remember because it comes over as rather rather naive. I'm talking about the, the, the danger done by the soccer ball, whereas we've realized strongly since then, I've had to learn that maybe a bigger danger comes from head clashes, not the ball, the head clashing going for the ball, and flying elbows and arms. These seem to be as big, if not a bigger part, in the dangers presented by heading the ball, and they, they need to be faced. And they can be faced because they're very visible. They often do involve the sort of blood and injuries that, um, that Terry Butch has suffered. FIFA will jump in, the English FA will jump in and say, well, we've got our protocol. Well, rubbish to that. The protocol does nothing whatever to prevent heading. It only applies after you've suffered the injury. It's a treatment form. And actually, it's not even soccer's own invention. I think they, they adapted it from a series of tests that were already in existence in the medical world in general for assessing concussions and injuries. So their, their record on this is not good, and it, you can draw a, a direct parallel with the, with the heads of the tobacco industry, who were actually told at one point by one of their expensive lawyers, he told the meetings, the leaders of the tobacco industry, our product is doubt. And this is what you're getting from soccer at the moment. Uh, it's all doubt. You can't say for certain that, um, that soccer causes uh, amnesia or causes brain damage. Listen, not very much in this world is, a, is as certain as they want it to be. They want 100% certainty. They're not going to get it. We're not going to get it. But anything over 50% to me, and I'm sure that the current research shows that as a distinct possibility of over 50%, to me warrants caution. And caution means you've got to do something in the game itself, not in practices. You've got to do something in the game itself to minimize the number of headings. That can be done with a, with a rule change or two, or even applying properly the rules that currently exist. And that, that's as big a beef as I've got with them, I think. That brings the referees into it, because the referees are, are not applying the rules that they should be applying. It's not their fault. They're doing what they consider will, so to speak, keep them in a job, keep them getting assignment. But uh, i just bring one factor to you, which I think is irrefutable, and I do not understand why it's not stopped immediately. And that is the way in which goalkeepers play the game, and in particular the way in which they will dive at the feet of an opposing player. That ought never to be allowed. I mean, what do they think is going to happen when a player with an unprotected head throws himself to the ground in front of a player running towards him, both of them going for the ball? The biggest chance of almost anything that happens in, in sport that I know of, of a head injury, I would say. And yet, even though I think under the current rules that should be forbidden, it, it's allowed, you see it in every game as common as almost any move in the sport. We've had deaths, also death in England only a few years ago, of, of uh, 
youth player, a boy. So it didn't really get very much publicity. In fact, I had trouble finding out exactly what happened. I discovered that the boys' goalkeeper trainer really didn't want to talk about it, and he he said, I don't know who asked him, or maybe nobody asked him, he said, I don't want this to be used as a means of changing the way that goalkeepers play. I found that an extraordinary statement, and I found it even more extraordinary when I discovered that the the guy making it was not only the boys' goalkeeper coach, he was his father. That's a level of the commitment to the game, over and above the safety of his son and all the other young boys and girls who might be playing the game. I mean, it just absolutely baffles me. Paul, do you think the you know the heroes of '66, and you know as they as they are getting into their '80s and '90s now, and and um, and maybe having some you know that 50% statistic that you hear about, or just other players that. Uh, you know, have been gotten in the the public awareness. Do you think that's that's going to cause the 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 wave to to turn to to make it where then people will have this discussion more and say, hey, we need to do something. You know, we can't just do the status quo. Well, I'm I'm hoping so. But it, again, it it does highlight what I see as a very nasty angle to the whole thing is that. We know about those players and their problems simply because they won the World Cup for England. Those thousands of thousands and hundreds of thousands of boys and girls playing on rotten fields under rotten conditions with probably not very good refereeing, none of, not a single one of those will get the proper treatment. And they certainly won't doubt whether they've ever heard of the protocol anyway. It should not be that we're only aware of very serious injuries with appalling consequences only when they happen to star players. That's not right at all. Do you think that we're at a point where, again, a change to the law of the game is really probably is the best way to reduce the risk and, and kind of put this issue hopefully a little bit behind us? Well, I'll, first of all, I'll jump on you in a friendly sort of way of course this is how this is how the english have got themselves into this business of the way the game is played you use the english term laws of the game that is not the american term the americans don't have laws for games we have rules and that's a much more sensible word because it takes away that sort of dominating idea that this is a law and you can't do anything about it the rules of the game, as they stand, need changing, or they need applying properly. One of the two. As I say, that business of the goalkeeper diving at feet, that has to go. Um, and that can, that, that can be done with a stroke of the pen tomorrow, and people would adapt. They are very adaptable people. Uh, other minor changes perhaps need to be made, but they need to be the result of genuine thinking and a wish to stop appalling injuries. We do not have the sort of proof yet, but everything indicates that we're going to get it, that the football biggest seem to be demanding before they'll take action. And that gap between the the initial research being done, the welter of research that we now have, virtually all of which points in the same direction. And uh, that's not an accident. It can't be a coincidence. It, it's got to be that that's where the truth lies. And that's not an easy one for the sport to digest. I don't want to see sport without hitting. But I don't want to see a, a, a trail of bad injuries and falling 
living conditions for family who have to look after people suffering from those things. We've got to look at that seriously and treat it as a medical issue, not as a matter of, of, of the silly rules of a silly sport. That's some clear guidance and thoughts on, uh, I think, on your experience. And I think something that uh, hopefully the people who are changing the rules will listen to. So, Paul, that's just, I really, really appreciate your perspective and your experience. I know you've been writing on this for years. And, uh, and I've always found the articles interesting. And it's only been my personal experience with my team that's really brought it to where I, I felt like, boy, I've got to, we've got to do something different because we can't sustain this. And I just wish I would have taken action sooner. I hear you. And um, it's good to hear you speak like that. The one area in that that leaves me feeling that something needs to be done about it is the position in which the referees are placing themselves. <clears throat> the referees are, by definition, are experts on the rules of the game. And that's part of their curriculum vitae. Obviously, they must know the rules of the game. They must, therefore, know, in my opinion, that what they're doing currently, regularly in every game, is against the rules of the game. They must know when they do not call goalkeepers for diving at the opponent's feet when they allow that. That is, in my opinion, I, I think I can state this very solidly, in my opinion, soccer's rule against what used to be called dangerous play is currently called playing in a dangerous manner. Soccer's mm-hmm. rules against that, to me, specifically prohibit anybody, goalkeeper or anybody, from throwing themselves literally headfirst at a player uh, going for the ball, where, where the feet are flying. That On the ground is where the feet belong, not the head. And the foul is not on the goalkeeper who might get his head kicked off. He's the one who's going to get hurt. Foul, the foul is against him. He should not be doing that, and the referees should be calling it. Now, they don't call it. I think they're making themselves vulnerable here because FIFA can write all it likes, and it has a whole page in the current rule book stating all the things that referees are not liable for. Now, I think that may stand up legally as long as they apply the rules of the game. If they don't, I don't see that, that they can write what they like about it. But referees are at fault. And I wonder why there isn't a word from at least an occasional maverick referee saying, look, we shouldn't be doing this. We'll say we shouldn't, that shouldn't be happening in the game. I would like to see that impetus come from the referees themselves but I'm not very hopeful. So, Paul, I'm going to give you an opportunity to be in charge of FIFA. You're in charge of FIFA for a day, and you can make whatever changes you want. Sounds like the the referees having a little more attention on dangerous play could be one. What would be the uh, another item that you would decree that day? I've already done my own research on this. My own research, of course, compared with what's being done by uh, all the experts, my own research is sort of pathetic and very small, but it's indicative. I counted in 10 different games, I counted the number of times the goalkeeper taking a goal kick or maybe a free kick just simply whacked the ball as far as he could. And it came out in those 10 games, it came out to, round figures came out to 200 times. So that's 20 long balls, which invariably, not always, but almost always result in a heading duel somewhere further downfield. Uh, those balls are in the air for about three seconds. That's plenty of time for a, um, a reception committee to gather underneath where it's going to drop. 
and up they go, and the helmets fly, and the head clashes come, and the, the English FA is calling our headers or high-power headers or something like that. Now, I discovered this for myself years ago, and I identified the headers. I call them hammer headers, which I think is a much better term, frankly. It's taken them over 20 years to reach where I was that length of time ago. That can be banned. You can, t- you can find a way of telling goalkeepers, okay, you're going to distribute the ball and we're going to offer you some opportunities to do it without getting trodden on. But you've got to, you've got to stop thumping these long balls way downfield where they cause heading problems. And I'm, I'm quite convinced that could be done without an enormous amount of uh, disjointedness. I mean, people who don't want heading to be banned will raise all sorts of, oh, you can't do this, and that's not soccer. You can't play the game that way. Well, you can. And that game that was played in, uh, in England uh, where they basically banned heading for all the second half of the game worked very well. Yeah. There was no, there was no problem. I didn't fall, so to speak. Yeah. So yes, so, I, I would say, you know, I would say I would call, I would tell the referees not paying attention to what your own rule book says. Read the rule on playing in a dangerous manner and tell me how that cannot possibly apply. In fact, how it must be applied to goalkeepers diving at the opponent's feet. Well, that's awesome, Paul. I really appreciate it, and I'm I'm glad we're able to connect and uh, get your perspective on uh, this very important subject. Yes, well, it's been a delight and a pleasure talking to you. Never gets old hearing the wisdom from Paul Gardner, who is never afraid to give his opinion as well. Thank you so much. I want to thank all of our great guests, including Becky Burley and Mr. Ledbetter, Celia Slater, and, of course, Mike Lynch and his outstanding crew of Sugar, Anson, and Paul Gardner. also want to thank Bailey Coughlin and Erica Dyer and Brandon Milburn, Jeff Van Dusen, and all the great folks at United Soccer Coaches, my producer, Colin Thrash. For each and every one of them, I'm Dean Linke. We'll see you next week for another exciting edition of the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Lee Gaps. Thanks for listening to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by League Apps. League Apps is the leading youth sports management platform, providing organizations with the technology and professional development they need to run, grow, and win. To learn more about League Apps, find them at leagueapps.com or as League Apps on all of the social networks. And to learn more about United Soccer Coaches, visit us at unitedsoccercoaches.org.